This past Sunday, we explored the words of our Lord as it pertains to something very particular to the commandments that He mentions here in Mark chapter 12. In this section of Mark 12, we find that Jesus is having a discussion with the Sadducees. And this discussion is about the law of Moses as it pertains to a husband and a wife and their children and what is to happen to them What is to happen to the children? What is to happen to the wife after that husband dies or if he was to die an untimely death? And there's a discussion there. But while this discussion is going on, there is a scribe, there is a lawyer who is listening to this conversation that takes place. Matthew actually specifically tells us that this scribe is a lawyer that we're reading about in Mark 12. Again, we were there Sunday. We'll go back to a few of these verses in a moment. But this scribe that we find in Mark chapter 12, we'll read about him in a moment. But this scribe, no doubt, was a man who knew what the law was. He kept the law. He would have had to have been an educated man. For him to be a lawyer, for him to be learned and studied and in the position that he was in, this man was a smart man. And it's even possible that this man, this lawyer, had a reputation in the community. Go to Mark 12, go to verse 28, and let's dive into this tonight with the Lord's help. So this conversation has taken place between Jesus and the Sadducees. Jesus has answered the Sadducees. They have listened to what He said. This scribe, this lawyer has overheard or is listening to the conversation. And then now listen to what takes place from the scribe and Jesus and this exchange that takes place. We read this Sunday, this will be familiar. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together, who is them? It's Jesus and the the Sadducees. And perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. So this 28th, 29th, and 31st verse gives us an idea of how this all started, what's taking place. Jesus answers him and he gives him something very, very specific. And he likes what he hears. This scribe really is intrigued by what he's heard already from Jesus, but he's getting ready to be intrigued even more by what Jesus was going to say. And then Jesus asks him the question and Jesus responds and then he responds again. But understand this. It's very important in this exchange that we understand a few things The question that was asked of Jesus, the question in the first place, when the scribe says, which is the first commandment of all? Jewish scholars would never accept that the law would be reduced to one thing that was a priority over another. Someone like this man, this scribe, the lawyer, the keeper of the law, the Torah, he would have never allowed Jesus to say anything and be settled or be satisfied with what he was saying. 
There's no way that anyone on earth could ever take the 613 shall and shall nots of the law of Moses, of the Torah, and find one summarization to put something ahead of the rest. It's too important. They all must exist. They all must have their place. No one could ever summarize the law in a few words or a a phrase. It's too precious. It's too important. And Jewish scholars would have never allowed this. Many commentators say that the way he is presenting himself is automatically because he's asking the question in an aggressive way. He's not asking this question to learn. He's not asking this question with a sincere heart. He's asking this question to cause friction. He's asking this question to cause issue. And and he's heard what he has said to the Sadducees. The scribe has heard what Jesus has said to the Sadducees and he's thinking, oh, okay, well, he's pretty smart. He's got some good words. He's got some good phraseology. I wonder if I ask him this question, if this streak of good luck that he's having with the language will run out. And I'll try to stumble him up on his own words and we'll try to get him in a pickle that he can't get himself out of. So I'll ask him. What is the first of commandments? What is the most important? When he asked him what is the first, he's not asking him, don't get in your mind the Ten Commandments, one through ten. We're talking about the law of Moses. We're talking about the law in its entirety. The first, the best, the most important commandment of the law. This was abnormal in the first place. In the way Jesus replies, it blows this man out of the water. It captivates his heart. It captivates his ears. And we're not going to focus yet again what we did on Sunday. I don't want us to look at what we've already looked at, this love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. We may come back to that yet again. But what I want us to focus on, what I want us to pay close attention to are the most important words ever spoken to this man, this scribe, this lawyer, And they are the words that Jesus spoke to him after he answered the question. And through this, we're going to see very closely that men and women can live and die and be lost and go to hell from the border right at the gate of heaven. Let's pray. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, God, for those that are gathered, for those that are watched later, for those that are watching in a different place, Lord, we ask you now to still our hearts. God, for a few minutes, I pray that your word would penetrate everything that's taking place in our lives at this moment. And God, for a few minutes, you would hide me behind the cross. Use me as your vessel, God, to preach what you've put in my heart. Lord, I'm thankful for the truth of your word. I'm thankful for the truth of the Bible tonight that is our firm foundation. God, I pray that we'd cling to it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. On May 24th, 1738, there was a man listening to a Moravian preacher. And this Moravian preacher was reading the preface of the Epistle of Romans. And it was a preface, a commentary, that had been written by a man named Martin Luther. And this man who was listening to the Moravian preacher was in fact himself a preacher. He was a missionary. He was an ordained minister from the Church of England. He had left England 
His father's name was Samuel. And he had left England and he had come to America. He had landed at Savannah, Georgia. And his mission was this. I'll go to the colonies. I'll go to those Americans, those new people who are starting their own country, or at least they want to, and I will take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those radical troublemakers, and I'll preach Jesus to them. And so the Church of England sends him, and he comes to Savannah, Georgia, and he winds up listening and hearing someone, a Moravian preacher, preach something that he had never heard before. It was something that would change his life forever. The man we're talking about is John Wesley. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of John Wesley in the building. John Wesley. And he was listening to this Moravian preacher. And as he listened to this Moravian preacher preach, his heart was struck. The way he describes it was horrendous condemnation, a deep conviction. And even though John Wesley had a devout faith in his own eyes and his own mind, even though he was a well-learned student of the Word of God, he was proficient in Greek, he was proficient in Hebrew, his mother would not allow him to play because he was too busy studying the Greek New Testament. This man knew everything there was to know about Scripture. He was well-learned, but this was the first time that he had ever heard anyone preach salvation by grace through faith. This was the first time. And even though he had all of the religious jargon, and even though he had been raised in church and was faithful to church and studied the Word of God, had even left his home to come to what would become the United States of America, he was lost and he was undone. And later on, after his salvation, he would write a letter to his teacher, his former mentor at the Church of England. His name was William Law. And he would write this teacher and he would condemn his teacher and he would say, Teacher, why did you never point me to Christ? Why, why in all the hours of didactic study and taking apart the New Testament did you ever take me and show me what it really means to be saved? Why didn't you point me to Christ? Why did you never teach me the truth of grace through faith? He condemned his former teacher. And as we read of his personal memoirs and his testimony, and even the 40,000 plus sermons he would preach before he died, Mark 12, 34 would become his life's verse. He would refer to it as the balm of comfort to his heart. The balm of comfort to his heart. Go with me now to Mark 12. Go down to the 34th verse. This exchange that's taking place. For sake of context, go to the 32nd verse and we'll read all the way through verse 34. It says, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is one other but he, none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the soul and with all the strength and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And then read verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. 
And no man after that durst ask him any question. Not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus has just looked at this well-learned man, this law keeper, this uh, very intelligent person, and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Do not misunderstand what the Bible's teaching here. This is not a compliment. Rather, this is a warning. Yes, Jesus acknowledged the, the scribe's insight about what he had said, and, and yet, by doing that, he's stating that the scribe was not far from the kingdom of God. But not far doesn't mean within. Not far doesn't mean yet arrived. Not far still means that you're outside of the kingdom of God. Not within is the saddest story for any life. And even though this man knew the scripture, even though this man had studied the law backwards and forwards and was devote to what he thought was faith, Jesus looked at him and said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Church, this is irrefutable proof, more irrefutable proof from the word of God that it is entirely something different to have something in your heart than it is to simply know it in your head. There's a difference in heart knowledge and head knowledge. There's a difference in believing in something and then just being warm to the idea of something. And just as John Wesley had the light of knowledge and religious action and religious programming and ideals and method, the scribe also knew that law and he kept the law, he respected the law, but was not in the kingdom of God. He had all of the jot and the tittle. He had every I dotted, every T crossed. Yet Jesus looks at him and says, you're close. You're not far, but you're not within the kingdom of God. Head knowledge is not what God desires. God is not looking for you to somehow fix things in your perception, fix things in your mind, and somehow appease or justify where you're living and how you're living just outside the kingdom of God to appease you so that you can die and go into eternity sitting on a church pew appeased of your sin. That's not how it works. Jesus has already told this scribe everything he needs to know about the first and the second commandment. He's already told him what he demands. He demands his heart. He demands his soul, his mind, his strength. And look how the scribe responds to what Jesus says. The scribe said to him, well, master, thou hast said the truth. There is one God, there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love the neighbor as himself, he, he's saying, yes, I agree with you. You're doing the one thing I thought you wouldn't be able to do. You're doing the one thing I thought I would trip you up on. And you've responded perfectly. He's saying to Jesus, I agree with everything you just said. Everything you just pointed out, my heart agrees. I, I believe it, it's true. Yet Jesus looks at him and says, you're not far. Which is to say you're not in. You can appreciate the person, Jesus Christ. 
You can love a pastor emeritus and a pastor and the idea of what heaven is and the idea that there's a hell and that you might miss it and you might even put into context some things from scripture and wholeheartedly think in your mind that you know what it means. But the Bible's clear. If he doesn't have your heart, then you are not within the kingdom. Well, master, it's excellent what you've just said. It's true. You're right. There is only one God. And this is this man, this scribe, this lawyer. It's his own commentary on the word of God. Because Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy. This is the word quoting the word. Just remember that Jesus truly is the best preacher to ever walk the face of the earth. The son of God quoting the word of God. If you'll pay attention to how Jesus did much of his recorded preaching that we have in the New Testament, much of what he did, much of what he preached was quoting scripture. How did Jesus defeat the devil as a man? By quoting scripture even in 40 days of temptation in the desert. Quoting the word of God. And now he has heard this scribe, this Pharisee, this lawyer has heard the word from the word and it's captivated his heart. He's been given just enough truth and understanding to know that what's being said is special, but it's not special to him until it's in his heart. And then Jesus in pity and mercy and in love, he responds. He, Jesus could have simply ended the conversation there and walked off. But Jesus in love and in grace and in mercy, he saw, the Bible says that he answered discreetly. Understand the meaning there of discretion. He's saying that it's with intelligence he responded. It's with meaning, it's with wisdom. Jesus was acknowledging that the man was answering prudently, yet he wasn't within the kingdom. You're right nearby, friend. You're on the border you're close, you know all the, the workings, you may even know where the gate is to get in, but you're still not in. You're close. And it may seem that Jesus is almost taunting him. He's not taunting him, he's warning him that all the religious action, all the good deeds, all the candles lit, all of the actions taking place in God's name, all of the scripture memorized in vain, all for vain glory you're not in the kingdom. And what we're watching happening here is the fork in the road for this man. This is his life coming to an intersection. No doubt this is a word of conviction. Jesus has just delivered to him the news that was truly a diagnosis that would prove fatal. You're not within the kingdom of God. It does not matter how good of a person you are. It does not matter how many times you have come to synagogue. It doesn't matter how much you have sacrificed at temple. You're not within the kingdom of God. You look the part, you smell the part, you've got the rings, the rope, the tallit, but sir, you are not within the kingdom. You're close. You've got a lot of knowledge, but I still don't have your heart. And what we know from Scripture, what we can read and understand, we don't know if this man ever came into the kingdom. The Bible doesn't tell us. I will find out when I get to heaven though. And I will ask. But this man was in the beginning processes, I believe with all of my heart, just from what we can see and know from reading in Scripture. This was the beginning of the scales falling off his eyes. This was the beginning of the process where the Holy Spirit of God, through the Son being there present in front of him in the flesh, the wooing and the drawing, this was the softening of his attitude. 
And he's gone from the aggressor trying to trip up Jesus to hearing his response. And now he's an attentive student. This is the persuasion process that could bring him to confession. Everything's begun. His heart now is softening to the idea that maybe he doesn't know as much as he thought he did. Maybe everything I've heard all my life, maybe this teacher, this person who's been preaching and teaching all over the region, maybe he really is who he says he is. And I need to start paying attention. What if this is Messiah in front of me? Well, it was. What we're talking about here is Simple Bible doctrine, but it's on display in front of all of us so clearly. We're not talking about irresistible grace. That's not biblical. What we're talking about is the wooing and the drawing power of the Holy Ghost of God on a man or a woman's heart. And when God begins the work, when God begins the process of persuasion, He has a 100% success rate of saving whom He pleases. God does not make an attempt. God does and accomplishes His goal. And if the truth is, if this man was to see heaven, Jesus could have continued the conversation and right then and there everything could have changed for all of eternity. Again, we won't know till we get to heaven. I have some questions to ask. But what this man has to come to terms with is not how he looks to his friends and to his family not how he's perceived in the community, but how do I look in God's eyes? What does God see when He sees me? I can assure you, the Bible tells us, it's His filthy rags. There's nothing to look at. There's nothing to be proud of. Humanity left by itself is disgusting, desperately wicked and deceitful above all, the prophet Jeremiah says. And it is the work of the Holy Ghost of God to bring about real, penetrating, earth-shattering, devastating conviction and power to reveal to a man or to a woman that they're lost, that they're undone, that they're on their way to hell. That is the work of the Holy Ghost of God. Only God can do that. Only God can reveal that to you. A preacher cannot save you. A denomination cannot save you. Saying words over and over in a repetitive motion and lighting a million candles will never save you from anything. It's the work of the Holy Ghost of God. And it's God's mirror that we look into and we see ourselves for who we are at salvation. I can remember when I got saved, I was 15 years old. I believe that God, especially in the hearts of young people and children, when it's their time and God's going to open their eyes and He draws them and He saves them, I believe with all of my heart that God picks one specific sin to really harp on in the heart of that young person. For me, it was lying. I felt such shame. I felt so condemned. Even that day before I got into the service, into the old building, I had lied through my teeth to my parents. And I felt condemned. I felt ashamed. And I felt exposed before God. Conviction. And no matter if you're John Wesley and you've studied the Bible all your life and you can speak Hebrew and you can speak Greek or if you're this scribe, this lawyer who knew so much, who had a good reputation, no matter if you're Winston Parrish, no matter who you are in life, only the Holy Ghost of God can open your eyes, open your heart and save you from your sin. 
It's a perfect work of God. You can know all of the vocabulary of churchgoers. You can rest on the rolling hills outside of the border of heaven and sing all the psalms, sing all the hymns, know all the scripture, but if you're not within the kingdom of God, you'll die singing hymns and go to hell. According to the word of God. You're close. You're not far. It's your heart that he wants. Church membership, baptism, signing a card, singing of songs, friendliness to the pastor, attentiveness and attendance, faithfulness to sit in blue chairs is not your salvation. One of the verses that those Moravian preachers preached that night that John Wesley got saved was Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace... Are ye saved through faith? Through faith. For by grace are ye saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The gift from God is not only the grace, but it's also the faith. Men and women are required to believe for salvation. God does not save robots. He persuades you. He shows you and you believe. But even the effort, even the knowledge, even the power for you to believe in the first place comes from a sovereign God. It's a gift from God. The gift is not only the grace, but it's the faith. And God's grace is preeminent in every aspect of salvation. I did nothing for myself the day I got saved. I did nothing. It wouldn't have mattered how long I spent over there, how many cards I could sign, how many times I could come to the altar. It was a perfect work of salvation initiated and completed by the Holy Ghost of God. He used the preacher to preach the Word. So then what is it? What keeps men, what keeps women from the kingdom? What would keep a man close outside, on the border, but never in. Three things that I can think of that come to heart. Number one is pride. It's a disease that consumes human beings. Daily we war with pride. What do people think of me? What is their perception? And even how do I perceive myself? Pride. No man has ever come into the kingdom of God through the basis of haughtiness and pride. Never, not one time. No one has ever stood or kneeled or prayed or wept in an altar and said, well, God, save me. I I deserve this. You owe it to me. No. When someone gets gloriously saved and the Holy Ghost of God has done the work, they'll get to a really low place and crawl all the way to Calvary. That's how I got saved. A low place. We war and we struggle with pride. There will be so many people, there are so many people tonight who are in eternity in hell because of pride. You can't have my sin. You can't have the way I think. You can't have the way I live. You can't have what I put in my body. You can't have what I do, what I say and how I do it. I will die and go to hell with a heart full of pride doing what I want to do. And there are so many people who live that rebellious life 
in light of everything that God has done for them, including fresh air, blood pumping through their veins, air in their lungs, and in grace and in mercy, even with a hard heart, God lets them live and breathe His air and drink His water. And sometimes they're even used as agents of Satan to come against His children. Yet God in mercy allows them to live. Don't allow pride to keep you from assessing your eternity. Don't allow pride to be the basis of where you live your life. 1 John 2, 15 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, it's pleasure for a season that according to the word of God passes away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That's your payday. That's why you can be absolutely certain that if you live the John 3.30 lifestyle that you decrease and he increases is that God will bless it. Proverbs 16.18 says, Pride goeth before what? Destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, that fall can be into hell itself. Pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's a curse of mankind. Pride, lust, and lastly, fear. Fear of people. Fear of friends. And fear of what it really costs to follow Jesus. You see, people love their sin. They love it. They love the drugs. They love the alcohol, the state of drunkenness. They love the illicit relationships. They love being able to live life with what in their eyes is no leash. People like that look at the Bible and they see nothing but a list of rules and regulations rather than the greatest love letter ever written to their lives where they can find real peace and joy and happiness and satisfaction. And sometimes just simply out of fear of who will be my friends if I surrender to what I know, I must surrender. There will be people who go into eternity holding on to friends that don't love them in the first place who know how to say church lingo, who know how to raise a hand at the right time, who even know how to get in the choir, put on a robe, and sing the praises of His people. Yet, they're close. They're laying on the fence outside the border of heaven. You say, this isn't popular preaching. The problem is preaching in 2022 so evades these truths. That's why we are where we are. No one wants to hear preaching anymore about sin and the consequences of sin, that the wages of sin is death. That's why the morality in our country is in the place that it's in. I'm not talking about Christian morality. I'm talking about morality in general. The decline of the American Christian home is because we've lost touch with this type of preaching, this type of truth. I don't have to get in front of you with a coffee table sized King James Bible and beat you upside the head. The Word of God and the Holy Ghost will do it for me. And if you're here tonight and you know you're lost, if you're worshiping online tonight and you know that you're lost and you're resting comfortably in camouflage 
happily on the fence, just outside the border of heaven. Allow this study in God's Word tonight to be your warning. If you're playing with eternity, friend with all the love in my heart, stop. Run to Jesus. If the Holy Ghost of God has been dealing with your heart for months and you keep stopping Him and pushing Him away, there may come a time where He will not come again. There is a deadline. The gate will shut. The lock will be locked. And you won't have the code to get inside. Jesus looked at this man with great knowledge, with great power and influence, and He said, you're not far, but you're not inside. For every Christian, this is a reminder to us of how important it is to pray for our family, to pray for our children, and our grandchildren, to pray for those that go to church with us, to pray for those who are missing from our flock, who should be here in this building even tonight. But because of pride, because of lust, because of fear, they're not here. Pray for them. Weep for them. And ask God to search your own soul tonight. The Word of God is tried and true. And Jesus has us here for a reason recorded in Mark's gospel for us to pay attention to. Someone can help me on the piano. We'll close. Let's pray for Brother Heath Williams, Power Conference at New Beginnings for Brother Daniel Buchanan begins Monday. Brother Heath is sick. He's supposed to preach eight times. He needs God to touch him. So let's ask God to give him strength to preach. That God will bless new beginnings for their effort. I love that church and I love the investment they've made in me. They've made in our pastor emeritus, Brother Daniel, those people that pray for us every day. We're thankful for them. Let's pray for our children, our teenagers next door. God would keep them, touch them. And let's pray for our church family the coming year. There's much to be done. A lot of people that need to hear the truth of God's Word. We'll give you an update on Sunday on some of the numbers and kind of report to you what God has accomplished here this year through this church. We'll praise Him together. If you're here tonight and you're lost, you're undone, this could be the greatest Wednesday of your life. Because here's the truth, the gate, the door to the kingdom of God. Well, let me just read this in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? The kingdom of heaven. Poverty in spirit, poor in spirit. Get to that low place and allow God to do what only He can. Luke 9, 23 is a reminder. It says, and He said to them all, all the believers, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Some of us just need to simply be reminded that we are in the kingdom, but there's work to be done. This isn't the place where we get comfortable. This isn't the place where we circle the wagons and wait on Jesus. We've got to go to the fence line and yell to the top of our lungs. There's hope in here. There's peace in here. There's comfort in here. You don't have to die in your sin and go to hell. He can save you right where you are. You pray with me tonight.
Holy Father, in Jesus' name, God, we come back into your presence and we're thankful tonight for what we have read from your word. God, the truth of your word, that is so true. God, I pray tonight that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice, no matter where they are, God, if it's tonight, three days from now, a year later, 10 years, God, if it's 50 years later and someone's surfing the internet, they're looking in the archives, God, I don't know how dark it will be in 50 years. But God, if this message is preserved in some hard drive somewhere, on some YouTube channel somewhere, God, I pray that you'd use it now to penetrate the darkest heart, the most broken person, the one that's struggling to grasp with reality, the one that's looking for hope and peace in all the wrong places, and Holy Ghost of God, do what only you can. Lord, I pray for everyone that's here tonight. I pray that you'd bless them, keep them, and encourage them. Lord, we pray for our children and our grandchildren next door, the teenagers, or the babies that are in the basement. God, we pray a prayer of protection over each and every one of them. God, we ask you that you would do something special in every one of their hearts. God, we ask you that this year more children and teenagers would be saved than we've seen in decades past. God, that you'd start securing the future of this church spiritually. God, that the olive trees would start bearing fruit. Lord, that there would be another harvest for 2023 like we've not seen in years. God, I pray for marriages that are on the brink of collapse. God, in Jesus' name, I pray the imps of hell off of every marriage of this church. Lord, I pray that not one more divorce would befall our church family. God, that there would be compassion and reconciliation. God, that there would be a tenderness for the sake of the children. Lord, I pray that you do it according to thy will. Preserve this work that you've started here on this hill and do it for your glory. Lord, we give you the 2023 finances. God, you know what we need. God, you know what this campus needs. God, all the money that we're going to need in the future, the millions of dollars that are going to be needed for your work on this property. God, in Jesus' name, we lay it at your feet. We ask you to send in every dollar that's needed. Lord, you've already sustained us thus far. God, for decades you've been faithful and true. You've met every need. You've paid every bill. You've kept the lights on even when it didn't make sense. During COVID, you paid us out of debt. And you've brought us this far for a reason and a purpose. And I pray in Jesus' name that you continue the work here. God, do it for your glory. Lord, we pray over this pulpit. God, for every message that would be preached. God, for every word that would be spoken. Lord, for every song that will be sung by the choir, the special music, everything that's done and said from this platform. God, we give it to you for next year. Lord, we dedicate it back to you. Lord, we do it for your glory. And we pray that you'd be pleased. Be satisfied in what you find here at 216 Shelburne Road. And start at the very top. God, inspect me. God, search my heart. God, for things in my life that don't look like you that need to change. Lord, I pray that you'd rip it out of me. God, that I would continue to decrease and become smaller, that you might increase and shine through. Lord, I pray today for the death of Winston Parrish. God, for the death of my flesh, the death of my desire. Lord, that your desire, your vision, your heart for this church would bleed through. It belongs to you. You gave it to us in the first place. Help us to be good stewards. We pray over these precious people that have come out on a Wednesday night to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that you'd encourage them. For the one that's doubting, for the one that's in a place of depression or anxiety, Lord, I pray that you'd be that balm, that comfort that only you can be. 
Lord, if it's a song, if it's a verse that they need to hear, if it's an old message from the 80s or the late 90s they need to remember, God, I pray that you'd bring it to their heart tonight. God, as they lay on the pillow, speak to their heart and encourage them. Lord, we're thankful for our time of prayer together tonight or for the study of thy word. Take it, seal it. Lord, we give you Sunday. Move in our midst. Give us the message for the hour. In Jesus' name, the church prayed. Amen. Mm-hmm.